Arthur Pink, Spiritual Growth, number 10 or 11 or 12, one of those. And uh, we're on the chapter, It's Means, and uh, we'll continue and finish this chapter. Third, keep the heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life, Proverbs 4.23. Take yourself firmly in hand and maintain a strict discipline over your inner man, especially your desires and thoughts. Unlawful desires and evil imaginations need to be nipped in the bud. By sternly resisting them at our first consciousness of them, of the same. As it is much easier to pluck up weeds while they are young, or to quench a fire before it takes firm hold, it is much simpler to deal with the initial stirrings of our lusts than after they have conceived. See James 1.15. Refuse to parley with the first temptation. Suffer not your mind to cogitate upon anything Scripture disallows. Fourth, keep your accounts with God. Keep short accounts with God. As soon as you have are conscious of failure, excuse it not, but penitently confess it to Him. Let not sins accumulate on your conscience, but frankly and promptly acknowledge them to the Lord. Bathe daily in the fountain which has been opened for sin and for uncleanness. Zechariah 13.1 It is strange that so many other writers on the subject have failed to place first among the means of spiritual growth this work of mortifying the flesh. <clears throat> sure, it should be quite obvious that it must take precedence over everything else. Of what avail can it be to read and study the word, to spend more time in prayer, to seek to develop my graces while I ignore and neglect that within me, which will neutralize and mar all other efforts? What would be the use of sprinkling fertilizer on my ground if I allow the weeds to grow and multiply there? Of what avail would it be my watering and pruning of a rose bush if I knew there was a great pest gnawing at its roots? Settle it then in your mind, dear reader that no progress can be made with you in the Christian life until you realize the paramount importance and imperative necessity of waging a ceaseless warfare against indwelling sin. And not only realize the need for the same, but resolutely grid yourself for and engage in the task, ever seeking the Spirit's help to give you success therein. The Canaanites must be ruthlessly exterminated if Israel was to occupy the land of milk and honey and enjoy peace and prosperity therein. Roman numeral two. Number two, devotedness to God. <clears throat> the lifelong work of sanctification, of mortification, is but the negative side of the Christian life being a means to an end. The positive aspect is that the redeemed and regenerated sinner is henceforth to live unto God, to wholly give himself unto him, to employ his faculties and powers in seeking to please him and promote his glory. In his unregenerate days, he went his own way, Isaiah 53, 6, and did that which was pleasing unto himself. But at conversion, he renounced the flesh, the world, and the devil, and turned unto God as his absolute Lord, supreme end, and everlasting portion. Mortification is the daily renewing of that renunciation of continuing to turn away from all that God hates and condemns. Devotedness to God is a living out of the decision and promise which the believer made at his conversion, which he gave himself unto the, when he gave himself unto the Lord, 2 Corinthians 8.5. Choose him for his highest good, and entered into covenant with him, to love him with all his heart, and serve him with all his strength. <clears throat> In exact proportion to a strict adherence to a surrender to God at his conversion will be the believer's spiritual growth and progress in the Christian life. That mortification and devotedness unto God is the true order of the principal means for promoting spiritual prosperity. It appears first from the grand type furnished in the Old Testament. 
When God began his dealings with Israel, he called them out of Egypt, separating them from the heathen, as he had their great as had their great progenitor when he called them to leave Ur the Chaldees, a figure of mortification. But that was merely negative. Having delivered them from their old manner of life and brought them over the Red Sea, he brought them unto himself, Exodus 19.4, made known his will unto them and entered into a solemn covenant to which they were consenting parties, declaring, All that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient, Exodus 24.7. Just so long as they adhered to their vow and kept the covenant, all was well with them. Devotedness unto the Lord was the grand secret of spiritual success. This order appears again and again in that oft-repeated word of Christ, which contains a brief but comprehensive summary of his requirements. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Matthew 16.24 There are the fundamental terms of the Christian discipleship and the basic principles of which the Christian life is to be regulated. Anyone who will come after me, who chooses, decides, determines to enlist under my banner, throw in his lot with me, become one of my disciples, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And that, daily, Luke 9.23, which presents to us the work of mortification. But that is only preliminary, a means to an end. The principal thing is, and follow me, my example, which is the grand principle which regulates which regulated him. What was the grand principle which regulated him? What was the unchanging end of Christ's life? This. I came not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. John 6.38 I always do those things that please him. John 8.29 And we are not following Christ unless that be our aim and endeavor. That devotedness to God is the outstanding mark the essential duty, the preeminent thing in the Christian life, is also clear from the teaching of the epistles. Romans 12.1 I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. That appeal is made unto Christians and begins the hortatory section of the epistle. Up to that point, the apostle had set forth the great facts and doctrines, uh, doctrinal contents of the gospel, and only once did he break the thread of that, his discourse by interjecting an exhortation, namely in six eleven to 22 the force of which is here gathered up into the concise but extensive summary. The yield yourselves unto God as those who are alive from the dead, 6.13, and the yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness, 6.19, is here paraphrased as, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. In substance, it is parallel with that word, Son, give me thine heart, and let thine eyes observe mine ways. Proverbs 23, <clears throat> The place which is given to this precept in the New Testament intimates its paramount importance. Romans 12, 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. This is the first exhortation in the epistles addressed to the saints, taking precedence of all others. First, there is a duty which God requires from us. Second, the ground on which it is enforced or the motive from which it is to be performed is made known. Third, the reasonableness of it is affirmed. The duty to which we are here exhorted is a call to the unreserved dedication and consecration of the Christian to God. But since those are terms which have suffered not a little at the hands of various fanatics, we prefer to substitute for them the devoting of ourselves entirely to God. 
The word devote is employed in Leviticus 27, 21 and 28, where it is defined as a holy thing unto the Lord. Yea, every devoted thing is most holy unto the Lord. That is something which is set apart exclusively for his use. Joshua 6 contains a solemn illustration of the force and implications of that term. Israel's commander informed the people that the city of Jericho shall be devoted, even it, and all that are therein to the Lord. Verse 17. Since it was his power that delivered the city of the Canaanites into their hands, he claimed it as his to do with it as he pleased, thereby precluding the Israelites from seizing any of the spoils from themselves. So that thereby might be no uncertainty in their minds. It was expressly added, But all the silver and gold, vessels of brass and iron, are consecrated unto the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. Verse 19. Therein lay the enormity of Achan's sin, not only in yielding to the spirit of covetousness, not only in deliberately disobeying a divine commandment, but in taking unto himself that which is definitively devoted or set apart unto the Lord. Hence, the severity of the punishment meted out to him and all his household. A monumental warning was that for all future generations of how jealously God, God regards that which set, set apart unto himself, and how the awful seriousness of putting a profane or common use would have been consecrated to him. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, signifies then that you devote them unto God, that you solemnly set them apart unto him for his use, for his service, for his pleasure, for his glory. The Hebrew word for to devote, charam, charam, where we get the charam principle, is rendered consecrate in Micah 4.13 and dedicated charam, Ezekiel 44.29. The Greek word for present, peristamai, occurs first in Luke 2.22, where we are told the parents of Jesus brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, which in the next verse is defined as holy to the Lord. How deeply significant and suggestive that an initial reference should be to our great example. It is found again in 2 Corinthians 11.2, that I may present you a chaste version unto Christ. It is the term used in Ephesians 5.27, that ye may present it to himself a glorious church. It is the same word that is translated, yield yourselves unto God, in Romans 6.13. It therefore means a definite, voluntary, personal act of full surrender to God. This duty which is enjoined upon the Christian, is here set forth more or less in the language of the Old Testament types. As the term a living sacrifice clearly intimates, while the word present is a temple term, for the bringing thither of anything unto God. This term is announced in the Old Testament prophecy. They shall bring all your brethren for an offering unto the Lord out of all nations, Isaiah 66.20. Not to be slain and burned in the fire, but to be presented for God's use and pleasure. So too it was revealed that when our God shall come, he will say, Gather my saints unto me, those that have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Psalm 53 and 5. There were three principal things taught by the Levitical authorings. First, our sinfulness, guilt, and pollution, which could only be expiated by a life for a life, and that was for our humiliation. Second, the wondrous provision of God's grace. Christ, a substitute and surety, dying in our stead, which was for our consolation. Third, the love and gratitude due unto God and the new obedience which he requires from us, and that for our own sanctification. The Christian is required to surrender the whole of his being unto God. The language in which the injunction is couched is Romans 12.1. is taken from the usage of the Mosaic economy. Present your bodies a living sacrifice connotes present yourselves as embodied intelligences. Our bodies are singled out for the specific mention to show there is to be no reservation. That the entire man is to be devoted unto the Lord.
the very God of peace, sanctify you wholly, and your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 When God called Israel out of Egypt, he said, There shall not be a hoof left behind. Exodus 10.26 Our bodies are members of Christ. 1 Corinthians 6.15 And therefore, does he bid us he bids us, yield your member servants to righteousness unto holiness, Romans 6.19. It is through the body that our new nature expresses itself. As 1 Corinthians 6 tells us, the body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body, verse 13. And again, know ye not that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, therefore glorify God in your body, verses 19 and 20. This duty is expressed in, the Old, Testament, in Old Testament terms because the apostle was comparing Christians to sacrificial animals whose bodies were devoted as offerings unto the Lord because he would thereby particularly emphasize that obligation which devoted, devolved upon them to be and to do, and to suffer whatever God required. The living sacrifice points a parallel and not a contrast, for no animal carcass can be, thought, can be brought by an Israelite. A living victim was brought by the offerer, and he laid his hand upon its head to signify he transferred to God all his right and interest in it. Then he killed it before God, <coughs> after which the priests, Aaron's sons, brought the blood and sprinkled upon the altar. Leviticus 1, 2, and 5. In the application of this term to the Christian, it may, be, it may also include the idea of permanency. Present your bodies a perpetual sacrifice, as in Christ the living bread, John six fifty one, and a living hope, 1 Peter 1, 3. It is not to be a transient sacrifice, but one never to be recalled. Holy means unblemished and set apart solely for God's use as the vessels of tabernacle and temple were devoted exclusively to his service. The Christian is called upon to give himself up to God, and that cannot be done without cost, without proving that a sacrifice is indeed a sacrifice, even though a willing one. Yet it is only by doing so we can be conformed to the death of Christ, Philippians 3.10. It is to be done intelligently, voluntarily, as a free will offering to God, with full and hearty consent, as one gives himself or herself to another in marriage, so that the believer can now say, I am my beloved's. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. Song of Solomon 6.3. Yet it is to be done humbly, with grief and shame for having so long delayed, for having wasted so much of my time and strength in the service of sin. It is to be done gratefully, from a deep sense of divine grace and mercy, so that the love of Christ constrains me. It is to be done unreservedly, with no reservation, an unqualified devoting of myself to God. It is to be done purposefully, with a desire, sincere desire, intention, and endeavor to be ruled by him in all things, ever preferring and putting his interests and pleasure before my own. But let us notice how the ground on which a duty is enforced, or the motive by which it is performed. I beseech you, therefore, and brethren, by the mercies of God, it is not I command you, for it is not the divine authority by which appeal is made, beseech is the tender language of loving entreaty, asking for a gracious response to the amazing grace of God, that therefore is a deduction made from what precedes. In the foregoing chapters, the apostle had from 321 onwards set forth the gospel mercies or riches of divine grace. They consist of election, redemption, regeneration, justification, sanctification, with a promise of preservation and glorification, blessings that pass knowledge. What then shall be our response to such inestimable favor? It was as though the apostle anticipated his Christian brethren being so overwhelmed by such lavish displays of God's goodness unto them. They would exclaim, What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits? What possible return can I make to him for his unsurpassing love? Well, here, says Paul, is the answer to such a query. 
to such a heart longing. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God. It is thus you will manifest your gratitude and evince your appreciation of all God has done for, to, and in you. It is thus you will exhibit the sincerity of your love for him. It is thus you may prove yourselves to be followers of Christ and adorn his gospel. It is thus you will please him, who has done everything for you, not merely by vocal thanksgiving, but by personal thanks, thanks living. Thus did the apostle begin to present and press those obligations which are involved by the blessed favors and privileges set forth in the preceding chapters. Those doctrinal disclosures are, are not so many speculative things to engage our brains, but are precious discoveries for the inflaming of our hearts. The contents of Romans 3 to 8 are given not only for informing of our understanding, but also for the reforming of our lives. We should never uh, abstract privilege from duty, nor duty from privilege, but take them together. The therefore of 12.1 points to the practical application of to what all goes before. And, you know, if we're going to speak of this in the Old Testament sense, we're talking about covenant faithfulness. Look, I've saved you from Egypt. You're like my, 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 like my wife. Now be faithful. Covenant faithfulness. Acceptable unto God, which is a reasonable service. Poor and paltry, as is such a return of the divine munificence. Yet God is pleased to receive the offering up of ourselves and to announce that such an offering is agreeable to him. That is in striking and blessed contrast from the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination unto the Lord. Proverbs 15.8 The words reasonable service are susceptible of various renditions, though we doubt if any better than that of the authorized version. Logical or rational are warrantable alternatives, for God certainly requires to be served intelligently and not blindly or superstitiously. Literally, it may be rendered, your service according to the word. Service may be rendered worship, for it is an act of homage and temple service, which is here in view, and this accords with the idea of sacrifice. God requires the worship of our body as well as of the mind, but in the light of the proceeding, therefore, we prefer reasonable service. Which is your reasonable service? And is it not so? Those that obey not the word are called fools, Jeremiah 8, 9, and unreasonable men, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, because lacking in wisdom to discern the expediency and equity of what God says, of God's ways. <clears throat> what could be more reasonable than that he who made all things for himself should be served by the creature that he made, that we should live unto him and give us being, that the supreme should be obeyed, the infallible truth believed, and he who can destroy should be feared that he who doth reward should be loved and trusted in. It is reasonable because it is what omniscience requires of us. That is the fundamental part of our covenant which we choose him as our, when we choose him as our God. One shall say, I'm the Lord's, and another shall subscribe with his hand unto the Lord, Isaiah 44, 5. But our solemn consent, by our solemn consent, we acknowledge God's right, right in us and yield to his claims. He requires that his right be confirmed by our consent. Take my yoke upon you. He forces it on none. Which is your reasonable service? And again we ask, is it not so? Does not a change of masters involve a changing order of life, a changed order of life? Should not those who have recovered from sin to God show the reality of that change in being as earnest in holiness as they were in sin? Talk is cheap, but actions speak louder than words. If God gave Christ to us as a sin offering, is it too much to ask that we devote ourselves to him as a thank offering? Christ was content to be nothing, that God might be all. Is it not, re 
Is it not reasonable that our judicial oneness with Christ should have for its complement practical conformity to him? If we have by regeneration passed from death unto life, is it not reasonable and meet that we devote ourselves as a living sacrifice to God and walk in newness of life? Are not the mercies of God appropriated by faith and realized in the heart sufficient inducement to move his people, to give up themselves entirely to his will, to be ordered, employed, and disposed of according to his good pleasure? Are any inclined to ask, what does all the above have to do with spiritual growth or personal progress? We answer, much in every way. Genuine conversion is a giving up of ourselves to God and entering into covenant with him that we sh he should be our God. And his promises are made to, to such as keep his covenant and to those that remember his commandments to do them. Psalm 10.3 But if we turn from devoting ourselves to God to sin and the world and thereby break the covenant, what possible spiritual prosperity can we enjoy or progress make? Christ died for his people, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him who died for them and rose again. 2 Corinthians 5.15 If then I relapse into a course of self-pleasing, so far from advancing in the Christian life, I have backslidden, repudiated the initial dedication of myself to God, and have cast Christ's yoke far from me. Spiritual growth consists of increasing devotedness to God and being more and more conformed unto Christ's death. It is one of the most effectual means for spiritual growth to live in the daily realization that Christ has redeemed us to God, Revelations 5, 9, 5, 9. To restore his rights over us, to admit us to favor and fellowship, to enjoy fellowship and communion with him, that we may be for his pleasure and glory, then to conduct ourselves accordingly. Only as we are wholly devoted to his service and praise, only as all our springs and joy are in him, do we realize, do we actualize the design of our redemption. No progress in the Christian life can be made any further than as we are regulated by the fact that ye are not your own, for you were bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. When that is really apprehended in the heart, the soul will become the consecrated priest in the body, will be the living sacrifice offered unto God daily through Jesus Christ. Then will it be the devotedness, not of constraint, but of love. The more fully we are conformed to Christ's death, the more closely we be following the example he has left us, the more and the only true Christian progress are we making. And just a note here, I mean, that's why a relationship to God is always, you know, compared to a marriage relationship. It's a covenant relationship, a marriage relationship. We serve him out of gratitude, out of love, out of devotion. And then Roman numeral number three, and then he has number three, honoring the word. <clears throat> By which we mean, according to God's holy and fallible word, the place, which is due in our affections, thoughts, and daily lives. But we shall only do so as we are deeply impressed with whose word it is, and the reasons for which we have been, has been given to us. God has magnified his word above all his name. Psalm 138.2 And if we be in our right minds, we shall value it far more highly than anything else. Psalm 119.72 Apart from the word, we are in total darkness spiritually. Ephesians 5.8 Without the scriptures, we can know nothing about the character of God, his attitude toward us, or our relation to him. Without the scriptures, we are ignorant of the nature of sin, and it's in infinite demerits, nor are we capable of discovering how to be saved from the love, guilt, and pollution of it. Without the scriptures, we know not whether we sprang, whether we are going, nor how to conduct ourselves in the integral between. Even as Christians, we have no other means for ascertaining God's will for us, the path we should tread, the enemies we must fight, 
the armor we require, and how to obtain grace to help in the time of need. All who profess to be Christians will give at least a mental assent to what has just been pointed out. But when it comes to the applying or working out of the same, there are wide differences of practice. In the matter of what use is to be made of God's word, there is considerable diversity of opinion. Rome does all she can to withhold the scriptures from the people, forbidding the reading of them, or where they are deemed impolitic, seeking to discourage the same. Her evil, evil leaven has spread far and wide for multitudes of nominal Protestants who do not normally formally accept the dogmas of the papacy suppose the Bible is a mysterious book, quite beyond the comprehension of the uninitiated, and that the Church alone is competent to explain its teachings. Wherefore, they are quite content to receive their religious instructions secondhand, accepting what, is, what the prelate or the preacher tells them from the pulpit, and since they do not search the scriptures for themselves, they are unable to test what he tells them and are liable to be deceived concerning their eternal interests. Thus, there is no difference in this respect between them and the infatuated papists. But there are others who read the Bible for themselves. But here there are many types. Some do so traditionally because their parents and grandparents read a portion each day. Yet in few cases do they give evidence of possessing a saving knowledge of the truth. Others read it superstitiously, regarding the Bible as a sort of religious charm. When in great perplexity or deep sorrow they turn to the book, they generally neglect hoping to find guidance or solace from it. Many read it educationally. If their closest friends are more or less religious, they would feel ashamed if unable to take part intelligent, an intelligent part in the conversation and seek to a general acquaintance with its contents. Others read it denominationally, that they may be equipped to defend our articles of faith. Others hold their own in controversy, seeking texts uh, which will refute the beliefs of others. A few read it professionally. In their, it is their textbook. Their principal quest is material suitable for sermons and Bible readings. Some read it inquisitively to satisfy curiosity and feed into intellectual pride. They speculate on prophecy, the types, numerics, and so on. Um, I've heard that uh, Richard Burton, the great actor, one of the greatest actors ever, liked to drink whiskey and read the Bible. But he obviously was not a Christian, unfortunately. No one may read the Bible from such motives as those... In until he is old as Methuselah and his soul is profiting nothing. One may read and reread the Bible through, through systematically from Genesis to Revelation. He may search the scriptures diligently, comparing passage with passage. He may become quite an accomplished Bible student, and yet, spiritually speaking, he is not one whit better for his pains. Why so? Because he failed to realize that the chief reasons why God has given us his word and to act accordingly because his motive is faulty, because the end he has in view is unworthy. God has given the word to us as a revelation of himself, of his character, of his government, of his requirements. Our motive in reading them, it then, should be to become better acquainted with him, with his perfections, with his will for us. Our end in pursuing his word should be to learn how to please and glorify him. And that, by our characters being formed under its holy influences and our conduct regulated in all its details, by the rules he has there laid down, the mind needs instructing, but unless the conscience be searched, the heart influenced, the will moved, such a knowledge will only puff us up and add to our condemnation. In the preceding chapters, we pointed out that in order for spiritual growth, a Christian must needs engage daily in mortifying the flesh and devoting himself as a living sacrifice to God, giving our reasons for placing them first and second among the principal aids to prosperity. Obviously, giving due place to the word comes next. For only by its instructions can we learn what is to be mortified and how to please God in our walk. 
Some thought was required on how best to formulate this third grand hell. Many have described it as studying the word, but as pointed out above, one may study it, as the scribes of our Lord's day had, and yet be none the better. Others use the expression feeding on the word, which is better, though today there are thousands who think they are feeding thereon, yet give little or no sign of their souls being nourished, or that they become more fruitful branches of the vine. We have therefore chosen honoring the word as a more comprehensive term. Now, in order to honor the word, we must ascertain the purposes for which God has given it to us, and then regulate our efforts accordingly. The word expressly informs us the chief ends for which it was written. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. 2 Timothy 3.16 Since they are inspired by God, it naturally and necessarily follows that they are profitable, for he could not be the author of that which is purposeless and useless to its recipients. For what are the scriptures profitable? First, for doctrine. That is, for sound and wholesome doctrine, doctrine which is according to godliness. 1 Timothy 6.3 The word doctrine means teaching or instruction, and then the principle or article received. In the scriptures we have the truth and nothing but the truth on every object and subject of which they treat, such as no mere creature could have arrived at or invented. The unfolding of the doctrine of God is a revelation of his being and character, such as has never been conceived by philosophers or poets. Their teaching concerning man is such as no physicist or psychologist had ever discovered by his own unaided powers. Such, too, is the doctrine of sin, of salvation, of the world, of heaven, and of hell. Now, to read and ponder the scriptures for doctrine is to have our beliefs formed by its teachings. So far, as we are under the influence of prejudice or receive our religious ideas on human authority and go to the word not so much with a desire to be instructed on what we know not, but rather for the purpose of finding something which will conform us in what we have already imbibed from man, be it right or wrong, so far we exercise a sinful disregard to the sacred canon and may just, justly be driven up, given up to our own divide, conceits, deceits again. If we are set up our own judgment so as to resolve not to accept anything as divine truth but what we can intellectually comprehend, then we despise God's word and cannot be said to read it either for doctrine or correction. It is not, it is not enough to call no man master. If I exalt my reason above the infallible dictates of the Holy Spirit, then my reason formulates my creed. We must come to the word conscience of our ignorance, forsaking our own thoughts. Isaiah 55, 7. And the earnest prayer that I, that which I see not Teach thou me, Job thirty four, thirty two. And so, so long as we remain on earth, first and foremost, then the inspired scriptures are profitable for doctrine, that our thoughts, ideas, benefit, beliefs concerning all the subjects of divine revelation may be formed and regulated by their infallible teachings. How that rebuke, how that rebukes those who sneer at theological instruction, who are prejudiced against the doctrinal exposition of the gospel, who ignorantly accounts it's dry and uninteresting, who are all for what they term experimental religion. We say ignorantly, for the distinction they seek to draw is an unscriptural and invalid one. The word of God nowhere draws a line between doctrinal and experimental. How could it? When true experimental piety is nothing but the influence of truth upon the soul under the agency of the Holy Spirit, what is godly sorrow for sin but the influence of the truth upon the conscience and heart? It is anything else than a realization or feeling sense of the hideousness of sin, of its contrariety to what ought to be, of its being committed against light and love, dissolving the heart to grief. Until these truths be realized, there will be no weeping over our sin, peace and joy in believing, yes, 
but you must have an object to believe in. Take away the great doctrine of the atonement and all your faith and peace are annihilated. I think I'll stop there. I just, uh, and, and this is really amazing. In reform circles, I've even heard this, but it's really popular among evangelicals. Doctrine's not important. I, I've heard this. And I heard this when I was in the RPCNA. Doctrine's not important. What we want is a practical religion. Well, that's a super ignorant statement. Doctrine is supposed to affect everything you think, everything you say, everything you do. Doctrine cannot be divorced from piety, true piety, from how you live. So when people say, well, let's not be doctrinal, what they end up doing is substituting uh, a Christianized version of humanism. And thus in evangelical circles, uh, it's common you send your kids to public school, which is satanic school. You're, that's like you sending their kids to be educated by the Canaanites. Um, worship is completely corrupt. Uh, the divorce rate is 50%, like the general population. Uh, fornication is super wide and popular among uh, young evangelicals. And so when, when you say, well, doctrine is not important, uh, being practical is important, that's one of the dumbest statements I've ever heard in my life. And I've even heard it, I heard it in the RPCNA in some sermons by RPCNA ministers. Now, if you say, uh, if you have doctrine, but you don't act on the doctrine, if you just, if you're curious about it intellectually, but you don't act upon it, yeah, that's, that's bad, and it disagrees with the doctrine. They have to be together. But this idea of not being doctrinal and not learning about God, not learning about the Trinity, and not learning about justification, all these precious doctrines, and just being practical, uh, and then you go to these churches, and it's all about entertainment and acting worldly, and, uh, going to Christ as great Santa Claus who gives you money and gifts, uh, you, you get a very perverted understanding of Christianity. But we'll stop there. It's a great book. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for Pink, your servant. These, these teachings come right out of the New Testament. They're extremely helpful, and we fall short of these things. Lord, help us to be totally dedicated to God as our covenant father, as our husband, Christ, as our, our Lord and Savior. Be faithful to these things and be holy and think about these things every single day. In Jesus' name, amen.